iTunes presents Meet the Author. Just a few things with regard to this book. It's called The Death of Bunny Monroe, and the protagonist of the novel is Bunny Monroe, and his wife um, kills herself very early on in the book, at the, in, in the first chapter. I don't think it's a real spoiler. Um, you know that very early on just by reading the jacket blurb. But what this makes Bunny Monroe end up doing is he's a traveling salesman, and he ends up doing the only thing that he can really do well apart from trying to... Um, impress and, and flirt and, and win over women, which is, is go on the road as a travelling salesman. But he takes his nine-year-old son, Bunny Monroe Jr., with him, and it's the last journey of his life. So that's the setup of the novel. I think it's one of the best things we have ever published at Canongate. Enormously excited about it and all the, all the elements that have made this one of the most exciting publishing experiences for me to date and I think it's just going to get better and on that note I'm going to hand over to Nick Cave. Uh, hello, this is very intimate. Um, well I'm just going to read a couple of bits here. Yeah? And then I'm supposed to be interviewed, so I'll just read on. I think uh, Jamie has basically explained the premise of this book and what goes on, but this, this first little piece is, uh, is when Bunny Jr. discovers that uh, he's going to go on the road with his father. Bunny Jr. lies on the floor of his, of his bedroom reading his encyclopedia. The carpet is thin and his knees and elbows and hip bones hurt from lying in the same position for so long. And he keeps thinking that he should get up off the floor and lie on his bed, but he knows that the discomfort he feels keeps him awake and alert and his memory keen. He is in the process of storing information. He is well into the letter M and he is reading about Merlin, who was a wizard or sage in the Arthurian legends, whose magic was used to help King Arthur. His mother, bought him the his mother bought the encyclopedia for him just because she loved him to bits. The boy likes to remember. Bunny Jr. thinks it is as, as elegant look... Oh, shit, sorry. <laughs> hey, I've got to relax a little bit. <laughs> I haven't done this before. Right, OK. <clears throat> this is a podcast, so... Bunny Jr. thinks the encyclopedia, right? Is, as, is an elegant-looking book with a jacket the exact colour of one of those citronella-impregnated mosquito candles. Merlin was the son of an incubus and a mortal woman, and the boy looks up incubus and finds out that an incubus is a malevolent spirit who has intercourse with women in their sleep. Then he looks up intercourse and thinks, wow, imagine that, as he gradually intuits the presence of his father standing in the doorway of his room. His father has showered and shaved and his ornamental curl that sits in the middle of his forehead has been artfully arranged into something musical like a treble clef or a fiddlehead. And even though his eyes are a shocking scarlet colour and his hands tremble so much that he has to keep them in his pockets, he looks 
on the face of it, dynamic and handsome. He is wearing a navy blue suit and a shirt that is covered in little maroon diamonds and he is wearing his favourite tie, the one with the cartoon rabbits on it. He is staring down at Bunny Jr. and smiling. Bunny Jr. thinks, well, what's going on? He thinks, boy, something good must be coming down. Hi, Dad, says the boy. You got a suitcase, says Bunny. I don't know, Dad. Well, find one, says Bunny, flinging his arms out to the sides in mock exasperation. Jesus, haven't I taught you anything? Well, what for, Dad? What do you mean, what for? Well, what do I need a suitcase for, says the boy, thinking he's sending me away, and he feels the wind rush out of him. Well, what do you think you need a bloody suitcase for, says Bunny. Am I going somewhere, says the boy, jumping from foot to foot and wiping at his forehead with the back of his hand. Not I, says Bunny. We. We? Yeah. Where are we going, Dad? Bunny Jr. is dressed in a pair of shorts and flip-flops, and he wears a faded T-shirt that has a picture of an orange, crazy-paved mutant called The Thing printed on it. The T-shirt is a couple of sizes too small for Bunny Jr. and is covered in holes, but the boy wears it for reasons of nostalgia that only he can understand. We are hitting the road, says Bunny, cocking a thumb and jerking it over his shoulder in the general direction of the outside world. Really, says the boy, smiling so much that his teeth show. Really, says Bunny, but you can't go looking like a bloody hobo. The first rule of salesmanship, be presentable. Just you and me, Dad? says the boy, peeling off his T-shirt and balling it up and pitching it, pitching it across the room. Just you and me, bunny boy. Okay. Um, you can clap or something like that. <laughs> okay. All right. So anyway, so, so, so they go on the road and... Uh, and basically over the next five days or something like that, it, it is a descent into hell. And uh, Bunny, Bunny uh, Munro is a, an old-fashioned sex maniac. And he spends his entire time trying to fuck every woman he can see. <laughs> and he, uh, and he, he goes door to, he's selling uh, hand cream door to door, uh, beauty products and that sort of thing. And he does this, and, and his boy waits in the car for him. And uh, this is one of... The, uh, it's sort of episodic at some points, uh, uh, certain adventures that happen, on with the, happen with these women, usually unsuccessful. On the f so, uh, so he's in, a, uh, he's in a, a, a room with a woman, in a, in a house with a woman, uh, trying to sell her beauty products. On the far wall hangs a framed picture from a West End musical, and on the opposite wall a poster. Sorry, and on the opposite wall a poster of of a self-portrait by Frida Kahlo, dressed as a gypsy and holding a little brown monkey. On the coffee table in front of him sits Bunny's sample case beside an incongruous bowl of stale potpourri. Bunny squeezes more lotion into Charlotte Parnivore's hands, kneading them and tugging on her fingers. Its unique healing powers penetrate deep into the skin, leaving your hands feeling supple and blissed out, he says. And he can see if he adjusts his sight line fractionally, Charlotte's inner thigh muscle jump and spasm in the gaping leg of her shorts. 
He fingers her bony and strong, his, her fingers are bony and strong and lubricated. And as he squeezes and unsqueezes them, he imagines her vagina barely an arm's length away. It's um, miraculous, says Bunny. I don't doubt it for a second, says Charlotte. Her voice has a super sexy masculinity to it, and Bunny frets for a moment, but shortly after realizes the folly in this. If she were a dyke, she wouldn't be sitting here letting him do his thing with her hands, and he relaxes and presses his thumb into her open palm and slowly rotates it. They've done actual tests, says Bunny, emphasizing the last word, elongating it, softening it. What kind of tests, says Charlotte, imitating him, gently mocking him. Scientific ones, says Bunny. Hmm, says Charlotte. And Bunny can see a secret and slightly sardonic smile find its way into the corner of her mouth. Yeah, does wonders for the wrists too, he says, moving up and feeling hard, ribbed muscle in her forearms. Charlotte closes her eyes. Hmm, she says again. Sexy lady says Bunny under his breath. What did you say? Bunny nods at the poster of Frida Kahlo and looks down, who looks down at them from under, from under her one bizarre and conjoined eyebrow with flat, expressionless eyes. In the picture, says Bunny. Bunny regis registers the hint of condescension in Charlotte's smile. Oh, Frida Kahlo, yes, she's beautiful, isn't she? I think that was painted in the 1940s, she says, looking up at the picture. Bunny thinks he can feel a surge of electricity pass through Charlotte's fingers into his, moving through his bones and straight into, into the base of his spine. He is overwhelmed by a multitude of tantalizing things he can say, but for some reason he says, didn't they have tweezers back then? <laughs> Charlotte's, Charlotte's, feature, Charlotte's fe features shift infinitesimally, but in doing so, her face becomes angular and severe. I'm sorry, she says. What do you mean? Bunny holds a finger up to his forehead and, and even as he does so, he feels a sense of things unraveling and having lost control. The monobrow, he says, <laughs> regretting it instantly. The what, says Charlotte. Makes you wonder what her legs look like, he says, before he can stop himself. I'm sorry, I don't follow you, says Charlotte, extracting her hand from Bunny's and staring at him with a fierce disbelief. I can see why the monkey likes her, he says, <laughs> jamming a knuckle into his mouth. Charlotte leans forward and connects with Bunny's eyes. I don't know if you can follow this, but Frida Kahlo was involved in a terrible accident that left her severely handicapped. I think she was hit by a truck, if you must know. Bunny picks up a towel and wipes the excess moisturizer from his hands. He feels disorientated, and he can almost see the words as they tumble from his mouth, as if someone else was filling in his speech bubbles, someone with a deviant love of catastrophe. Really? Well, to be perfectly honest, I find the picture a little depressing, but what would I know? Still, if she painted it with her foot, then, effortlessly and seamlessly, Bunny says, speaking of which, I have a sensational balm that is just heaven for the Tootsies. Miss, may I call you Charlotte? Charlotte looks at Bunny, her head angled as though she was trying to decode the anarchic scribblings of a child. You can call me Bunny, says Bunny, and he waggles his hands behind his head like rabbit's ears. A low, unpleasant chuckle escapes Charlotte's throat, and she picks at the cyst on her forehead and says, you're kidding, right? I'm deadly serious, Charlotte. That's the kind of name I'd give to my 
rabbit? Charlotte, Charlotte softens and despite herself smiles and says, yeah, rabbit. Bunny, Bunny sees the super-toned muscle in Charlotte's thigh twitch and he thinks he sees, carried on the happy ozonic air, golden sparks of love jumping out the legs of her pink toweling shorts. Emboldened, Bunny leans in and wiggles his eyebrows and says suggestively, well, Charlotte, you know what they say about rabbits. No, I don't. What? Well, they're, um, well, you know, says Bunny. Uh, no, I don't know what they say. And then Charlotte adds something that sees the entire episode slip through Bunny's fingers like the string of a child's flyaway balloon. Does this routine actually work on the ladies, Bunny? Charlotte waggles her ears behind her head, mocking him, and Bunny feels a spike of umbrage worm its way through his bowels. You'd be surprised, he says, and before he can check himself, winks at her. Charlotte shrieks with laughter and said, did you just wink at me? <laughs> Bunny thinks, did I? And then feels her laughter scrape its fingers down her spine. I might have, he says, or I might just have something in my eye. What the fuck, he thinks, what the fuck? Charlotte howls and cups her hands over her mouth, then points at Bunny and shouts, you are beyond belief. So I've been told, says Bunny. <laughs> Where have you crawled from, the tar pits? The what pits? You should be embalmed and have a sign hung around your neck saying extinct. I resent that, says Bunny. I take personal hygiene very seriously. But even as he says this, he can smell the scent, he can sense the faintest odour of flophouse sweat rising from his armpits. Not stink, extinct, like a dodo. Whoa, steady on, says Bunny. And with a kind of wounded awe, watches Charlotte's features vulcanise before his eyes. The dry blonde hair taking on the appearance of a steel helmet and her eyes a fierce, warring, metallic sheen. You ridiculous man. Hey, I'm just trying to do my job here. You sad, ridiculous little man, she says. What is this? Jesus, says Bunny as he grabs handfuls of beauty samples and throws them into his case. A shadow falls across his face and he looks devastated and injured. Jesus, he, he repeats to himself. Hang on, I've got to have some water. Is there any, uh, can I have some of that water there? Um, right, Jesus, he repeats himself. Then Charlotte's face changes again, and without warning, she puts her soft, greased hands over Bunny's hand and says with a fair approximation of gen genuine concern, oh, I'm sorry, Mr. Munro, I've gone too far. I've wounded you. That wasn't fair. Bunny feels a sudden and excruciating pressure on his bladder. He holds up his hand and shakes it off as if to ward off further comment. No, it's all right, I just need to use your bathroom. What, says Charlotte? Yes, yeah, says Bunny, I've been on the road all day. I need to go so much I can taste it. Charlotte shrieks with laughter and a nerve twitches under Bunny's eye. Oh man, you're a class act. It's down the hall, she says, and cocks a thumb in the direction of the bathroom. Charlotte's laughter follows Bunny as he quick marches towards the bathroom. 
He feels a violent and boiling rage towards her, but, it is not he's, but he's not completely surprised to see visions of her sparky vagina strobe before his eyes. He enters the bathroom in a fury, scrabbles at his flies, and passes a stream of urine with such puissance that it makes the bones in his face ache. A glaze of sweat covers Bunny's brow, and his quiff lies on his forehead as limp and as insentient as roadkill. Bunny hears Bunny... Oh, hang on. Sorry. Bunny hears a renewed shriek of laughter come from the living room, and he bares his teeth. Fucking bitch, he says, and he pisses on her carpet. <laughs> then he pisses on her lilac-coloured walls, then on the rack full of magazines, and then on the hand towels, and, and with a grand flourish, he rises up on his toes and pisses on her toothbrush that sits in the glass next to the basin. And then he zips himself up, opens the door, strides back down the hall, full of a renewed and unobstructed purpose, and says, all right, do you want to buy any of this shit or not? <laughs> I detect a note of hostility, Mr. Munro, says Charlotte, standing up from, from the sofa and rolling her head around on her neck in order to release some pent-up tension. Bunny notices that she is tall and broad across the shoulders, and the shell-like furuncle on her forehead seems to have morphed into a tiny tusk or horn or something. Well, we fucking dodos get like that sometimes, says Bunny, and the corner of his eyes flutters. Charlotte stands firm, hands clasped benignly in front of her and says, as if imparting a simple, incontrovertible fact, for your information, Mr. Munro, I am a black belt in Taekwondo. Oh yeah, says Bunny, well I just pissed all over your bathroom. <laughs> you what, says Charlotte, taking a step colour. That's right, the walls, the carpet, your hello magazines. You what? Your fucking toothbrush, says Bunny, showing his straight white teeth. Suddenly, and without discussion, Charlotte begins to jump up and down on the balls of her feet, her muscular arms relaxed and loose at her sides. Bunny is immediately and completely transfixed by the sight of the Diamante charm being tossed around on its happy pink bolster like a child on a trampoline. He notices that Charlotte is not wearing a bra and that before his very eyes her nipples are, are stiffening and now, just, and, and now jut through the thin cotton of her t-shirt, hard and fierce and unusually protracted. He sees, incredibly, what appears to be tiny cartoon sparks shooting from them and he thinks for a sweet moment that maybe, just maybe, all is not lost. He feels his cock roar awake. Meanwhile, Charlotte Parnavar steps forward and with a solitary rabbit punch, busts Bunny's nose. There is an audible crack, a supernova of light, a geezer of blood, and Bunny tumbles backwards over the calico sofa and lands in a stunned heap on the floor by the front door. Hey, says Charlotte. There is a great pumping of blood from Bunny's nose that splashes down his tie and his jaw yawns open and he makes a sucking noise like a fish. In slow motion, he allows his head to fall forward and watches the bright blood pool in his cupped hands and says, not loudly, but with the purest kind of outrage, fuck. Charlotte continues to hop up and down her nipples as hard as bone. The foundations of Taekwondo are built on integrity, peace and respect. You ought to try some, rabbit man. Painfully, Bunny climbs to his feet, points one trembling finger at her and says, you horrible fucking slag. He says, you mad, ugly, diseased. And Charlotte Parnava grins and swivels and tilts her hip to one side.
Thank you. Right. So that this carries on, and, and he kind of goes downhill and downhill. And, um, and the book turns into another book altogether, actually, as it goes on. But uh, here's a, um, a last little, little thing. And um, he's sitting outside uh, the last woman, woman's house that he finally goes into. And um, he's drunk and fucked up. And uh, Bunny Jr. is starting to get a little bit bored with the whole thing. Outside Mary Armstrong's bungalow, Bunny leans across and says to Bunny Jr. with a belch of inflammable breath, all right, wait here, I won't be long. Well, what are we gonna do, Dad, says Bunny Jr. Bunny takes a slug from his flask and slips it into the inside pocket of his jacket. Well, son, we're going to shake the money tree, OK? We're going, to sh we're going to shaft some mugs and milk the jolly green cow, says Bunny, jamming a Lambert and Butler into his mouth. We're grubbing the moolah and gleaning the beans. We're divesting the greater public of their spondulics. We are, as they say in the trade, raping and looting. Bunny torches his cigarette with his zippo, scorching his quiff and filling the car with the stench of singed hair. We are trying to make some fucking boodle. Are you with me? And I've got a very good feeling about this one. Yes, Dad, but what are we going to do with ourselves after we make the boodle? We are vampires, my boy. We are vultures. We are a frenzy of piranha flenching a fucking water buffalo or a caribou or something, says Bunny with a madman's grin on his face. We are fucking barracuda. The boy looks at his father and a stone-cold realisation hits him. He sees in the appalling orbits of his father's eyes a resident terror that makes the child recoil. Bunny Jr. sees at that moment that his father has no idea what he is doing or where he is going. The boy realises suddenly that for some time he has been the passenger on an aeroplane and that he has walked into the cockpit only to find that the pilot is dead drunk at the controls and absolutely no one is flying the plane. He looks into his father's panic-stricken eyes and sees a thousand incomprehensible dials and switches and meters all spinning wildly and little red bulbs flashing on and off and going beep, beep and beep. And he feels with a nauseating swoon the aeroplane's nose tip resolutely earthward and the big blue fiendish world come rushing up to annihilate him and it scares him. Oh, daddy, he says and straightens the little pink daisy in his father's lapel. We just have to open our great jaws and all the little fish will swim in, says Bunny, trying with great difficulty to extricate himself from the punto. I've got a good feeling about this one. Bunny Jr. gets out of the punto, moves around to the, to the father's driver's side, opens the door and helps Bunny out. And his father performs a little shuffling two-step and starts to laugh out loud for no reason. Everything goes whoosh as the boy falls out of the sky. Bunny walks up the oil-splattered concrete drive. He opens his flask of scotch and empties it down his throat, then tosses it over his shoulder, and it lands amongst the strew of garbage that lies about the overgrown yard. He mounts the steps to the bungalow with its grimy pebble-dash walls and shattered windows and knocks on the front door. Miss Mary Armstrong, says Bunny, 
and the door creaks open, but there is no one there. Bunny straight strokes the hank of hair that lies limp and doomed over one eye and feels compelled to enter. Miss Mary Armstrong calls Bunny and takes a furtive step across the threshold. Anybody home, he says. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you very much. This is Sean. Hi. This is a lot harder than it looks. It is. A lot, uh, they're a lot closer than I thought they'd be. Uh, that was absolutely brilliant. Um, Thanks. Well, well done. Um, you, you have created a monster with Bonnie Munro. Um, we probably shouldn't be surprised, but... He surprised me in the depths of his depravity. Uh, what I find that just surprises um, most men is how much they see of themselves in Bunny Munro. And that's probably what, what uh, happened. Is that right? Well, well you're not going to... To a degree. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, one of the things you said outside which, which uh, surprised me, actually, was that... Um, Two of the triggers for, for the book were one of them was um, Valerie Solanus's uh, Scum Manifesto. Valerie Solanus is the woman who famously tried to kill Andy Warhol. But she also wrote this extraordinary tract against uh, misogynists and against males, I guess. Well, just against men. Yeah, against men, yeah. yeah. Has and anyone read that, the Scum Manifesto? Forget this, read that. Yeah. It's, well, get, get them both. It's, um, <laughs> it's really good. And, and I mean, the first, the first uh, couple of pages of it, she just, it's the scum manifesto. It was the Society for Cutting Up Men. And uh, she, she doesn't like men, and she thinks the world can do without men. And she does a wonderful description of what she considers maleness to be at the start of that, that book, which is very much um, what, money, what Bunny Munro uh, is based on in a lot of ways. And you, by extension, you agree with her definition of maleness? Well, I actually uh, warmed to it and, and understood, uh, you know, at, at, at the, at, down at the bottom, within, in our kind of reptilian brains that we have, there is, um, there is a way of seeing the world that is similar to the way that Bunny Munro sees it. I mean, we've learnt things and we've learnt ways to live in society that Bunny Munro hasn't obviously learnt. Um, but I recognised, you know, I recognised the character that she was talking about. I recognised it in myself and I recognised it in other people, other men. So he isn't a, a composite of real people, this guy? He isn't someone No, 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 I haven't, I haven't based him on any, anyone. Yeah, yeah. The other trigger you mentioned in the same sentence as the Scum Manifesto was the Gospel According to St. Mark. That's quite a sort of a range of influences going on. Well, I mean, it, this book is completely, in, in the way that, uh, you know, even the title is completely obsessed and, and moves uh, towards the death of the central character, just in, in, in the same way as that particular gospel does. Um, and it's, there's a, a, same, a same kind of urgency about it, um, that 
it's episodic and it moves bang, 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 bang towards his death. And the first line of the book tells you that he's going to die. And, and, that, and, and that's very much like that particular, particular gospel is. I guess the, the, the difference, or one of the many differences, would be that he, you don't go down the route, the redemptive route, of, of trying to save this guy's soul before he finally meets his end. Well, I don't see that our souls need to be saved. Um, you know, I, I'm, what I didn't want to do was to write a book that, that creates a monster that becomes, uh, eventually becomes aware of his shortcomings and takes responsibility for, for his life, apologises to everybody, and, um, you know, everyone lives happily ever after. I don't think that that um, happens, actually. Yeah. I, don't, I don't think that that's true to life. I think that um, life is a lot more brutal and a lot, and a lot messier. You also capture, in um, the book, you, obviously most of you haven't read it yet, or maybe none of you have read it yet, but it's got an extraordinary sense of place as well. It is, it's located very much near where you live in Brighton. It's, it starts with the West Pier on fire. It moves up that coast. It ends up in Bognor Regis. It, it, it's very much a book about a particular type of England by, from an outsider's point of view. Is that fair? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. I mean, there's something about... I'm an Australian, and there's something about English guys I don't really get. <laughs> There's a certain humour, uh, and a particularly a certain humour towards women that I don't really, as an Australian, I don't really understand. <clears throat> and it's that kind of laddish thing. And, uh, you know, and you can see it in Nuts and Magazine and Zoo and all of that kind of thing. I, I, <clears throat> it's something that... Uh, yeah, and, and I think to, through, through, through that spectrum, you can... Bunny Munro is quite an attractive character. He's a funny, chancer kind of character. But I took this particular character to his... Who could have walked out as, you know, the pages of Zoo magazine in some kind of way, I guess, to its logical extreme, um, where you find out by the end of the book that this guy is not in any way a funny guy. Uh, and, I mean, I don't really want to give too much away of the yeah, book because yeah. it has, a, it has a, a major twist to it and, and, and the book is really not what it appears to be. Um, it has a jauntiness initially to the book and it's, not, it's, it's, not, and it's actually not really about a guy... Uh, it's, Bunny Munro is a sex maniac, but in the end he's not... He's not really interested in sex at all. He's on a kind of epic flight away from love um, and he's just trying to find a woman to crawl inside where love can't find him. Yeah, yeah. I should put that in a song. Pretty, in yeah. fact, I should have. <laughs> yeah. I had worked that one out before. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he is the, the... You'll probably read it in 15 interviews that I... Yeah, yeah. But anyway, but not, I, mean, that's, me. I mean, that's it's quite seriously, that is uh, um, what you... I guess one of the things that you find out about this, this character. So this whole... This thing that you sense in English culture, in, in English male macho culture, you think it masks a whole lot of other neurosis and fears about women? Yeah. And, yeah. Interesting. <laughs> yeah, for, for someone who, for years... 
has been the Other case. Irish people, of course. Well, of course, not Kelson. But for years, you, I mean, you were famously accused of the same kind of misogynies and stuff yourself at certain times. Well, well and fa uh, falsely, I would say. Yeah, and, of course. And, uh, I mean, I, you know, I'm, I do write about those sorts of things. And I do, um, but there's, for me, there has always been a separation between the writer and, and what you write about, you know, yeah. the, the teller and the, whatever it is, the tale. Yeah. Um, and I do write about those sort of things a lot, and I am preoccupied with certain things like that. But they, uh, but, but I write largely narrative songs, and they are, they are, there are characters in these songs, and those characters aren't me. They may, they may be aspects of my, my character, and I may understand them, but they are not me. They're yeah. not putting forward my point of view necessarily. Are there um, any parallels at all between the act of songwriting and the act of sitting down to? Well, songwriting's hard, and writing a book is easy. <laughs> <laughs> songwriting is really, for me, is is really really difficult. But you've, right. you've you once said to me many years ago that your your first book, your first novel, the, and the ass saw the angel, damn near killed you. Well, it, that, that's right. Yeah. I mean, that particular book was a, was a different. Written for different reasons, um, I had more. I had a huge thing. I felt I had to kind of prove with that book in some kind of way. At that time, there weren't musicians writing novels. Um, I knew that. Yeah, I mean, there was a lot going on in that book. That that, and it took three years to write. You know, that took uh, six weeks. Yeah, absolutely extraordinary. Well, and six, know, six weeks by, of, by uh, on when you were on the move, when you were actually touring. Yeah. So you weren't yeah, I mean, it was written late, late at night in hotel rooms and early in the morning in hotel rooms. And, I, you know, I would sort of fall asleep and with the book there and kind of wake up and crack on and, and wrote it on the tour bus and backstage. And did any of the dialogue actually come from the tour bus? Oh, totally, yeah. Oh, did it? Will you name the guilty party? Well, I mean, the, the bad seeds yeah, yeah. in general. No, I was thinking of specific well, you know, members. The, if people think that the bad seeds sit around and talk about... James Joyce and stuff like that when they're on the bus. They go, well, they, 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 you mean they don't? They don't. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, touring wears you down on, on every level and, and it, the, the only way that you can survive and survive together is to operate on a certain level, conversationally on a certain level. And one of those places is not to talk about uh, or, or not to allow your personal lives, your personal problems, all of that sort of thing into the equation. There's a stoicness that goes on, a, goes on, on tour and a very uh, simple line of conversation. Like, check her out. Yeah. So it's that basic, really? Yeah, I don't go into that. So yeah. but, I mean, I'm talking about the other guy. You're, you're up the back <laughs> of the bus writing the novel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know you, you don't really want to talk too much about the long gestation of the book and stuff, but what has happened in the interim that has made... Is it just the fact that you've written more over the years that has made writing well, easier I've, for you? Well, I've started writing film scripts, and I found that hugely enjoyable, and, and that I had a kind of talent for it, you know, that I had a, had a talent for sitting down and telling a story, and I could do that uh, quite, you know, relatively easy, easily. And so... The, the, book, the book was initially a film script anyway, yeah. but, uh, you know, I just, I just started to write it on the bus, like took, someone suggested that I write it as a, as a novel because the script was never getting off the ground. And um, I just started to write the first chapter in, in prose style and 
kind of liked, enjoyed it, and then did another one. And sort of four chapters in, I thought, look, you know, maybe I'm writing a book here. Yeah, yeah. Do you? I know you you work very closely with Warren Ellis, and, and yeah. you've done this soundtrack for the book. Yeah. Do you do you show drafts to to people? On, no. I mean, would you show it to any of the musicians? No. So, so who just you, got, they just got the book. So who do you bounce it off, if anyone? I didn't bounce it off anyone. No. I mean, I sent it to the publisher. I mean, I said to Jamie Bing from Canongate that he made me, you know, I made a promise that he wouldn't allow me to put out a shitty book, you know, that I'd write something and if it was bad, he'd say so because I have n enormous sort of trust issues about the whole the whole extracurricular things that I do that people will just put them out because they know they can make a few quid because I'm a, you know, singer and stuff like that. And Jamie very carefully explained to me that Canongate don't put out shitty books. Um, so, so that was the deal we made. And so, so I sent, you know, I, I, got a, I sent the first part and they liked it and second part they liked it more and, and so... And did you have any sense of trepidation when you were, when you were doing something like that? I mean, obviously you're used to performing and stuff, but that was, was this a different title book? I really... Uh, I mean, I, I wanted to know what they thought. There's that kind of weird... I guess all writers have it. They send in their work and expect the publisher to ring back five minutes later and say it's a masterpiece. But the kind of days went by and I'm sort of <laughs> thinking those bastards and all that sort of stuff. But anyway, they eventually rang back yeah. and um, they liked it. But, you know, there was, a, there was trepidation. But actually, I mean, even if they didn't like it, I enjoyed the process of writing it so much that, that, that it, was, it would have been worth it if it never got published. Yeah, and that does come across. It does sort of go... The, the, the very interesting thing that you've done is that it, you could have dipped into the, the funny romp at the expense of this guy. But it, underneath all the sort of black humour, it is a deeply serious book. Well, it is. I mean, that's what... My... my biggest fear about this book, about people reading this book, is that they give it up after the first third or something like that, thinking it's <clears throat> a certain type of book. And it does start in a certain type of way, um, with a certain type of humour. But it is, it is in, in my view, a very personal book and a very, you know, it, it, it ends as a very, in my view, very, I mean, it deepens as it goes. And, and becomes very much a book about the relationship between a boy and his father. Um, in particular, that's the kind of very affecting part for me. Yeah. I mean, that's the, that's the stuff I can really take for myself, is I have two nine-year-old kids. This kid's nine year, years old, and, and I know that I know that thing that it doesn't matter what you do as a father, a nine-year-old, unless, unless you physically abuse them in some way, a, a nine-year-old will, will think that you're Superman, you know? Yeah. You can't really do anything wrong. Uh, and this is the interesting dynamic that happens. The worse the father gets, the more the son loves his dad. Yeah, even after the death of the mother himself, he has this undimmed belief in his father. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But he has nowhere else to go, you know? Yeah, and he's left with, we're not spoiling the ending because the ending is in the book title, but he's kind of left. But you do sense that he's going to be all right. Well, I don't know. Well, I, well, I certainly felt that. Yeah. <laughs> I felt there was some... He'll turn into an adult. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, and, and I think the, the, uh, the, the child's world to me is very interesting and it's, um, 
in a lot of ways far more interesting and and mysterious than the than the adult world. You know. But in some strange, ironic way, Bonnie himself is someone who's never really grown up. Um, yeah, that would be fair enough to say yeah. that. And the other thing I thought that was running underneath was this sense that this guy is actually haunted. He feels that there is someone on his tail. You know, it's that Robert Johnson thing, that there is someone chasing him, be well, it his he, wife. Well, he actually or... is. Well, he, he thinks he actually is being haunted by his wife. Yeah. <clears throat> and the boy also, by his mother. Yeah. Um, the boy has a different relationship, though, with, with his dead mother. Well, you don't... The, the, the narration is so unreliable that you don't really know yeah, what's, yeah. a lot of the time, what's real or what's, what Bunny thinks is, is going on, what he thinks is going on between his relationships with the women. And increasingly, as the book goes on, the, the, the narration becomes more surreal and, yeah. and, un, and certainly unreliable. I'm going to open it up any minute now, but there's one particular, the very last sentence in the book, which is where you're paying, you're giving thanks to people for helping you along the way, but you, 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 you thank uh, Avril Lavigne and, and Kelly Malogue, but you also apologise to them for what you've put them through in this book. I mean, how do you feel? Well, you, Bunny, you know the, Kelly, how do you think she's... It's difficult to... <laughs> I mean, the thing is, Bunny Munro has, is for all his... Um, mania about sex, he has no sexual imagination whatsoever. The only thing he can really conjure up uh, mentally, sexually, is a vagina. And he doesn't really get stray past that. Uh, although occasionally he can think of a celebrity vagina. And, and in particular, Avril Lavigne's vagina. And he has... Um, and Kylie Minogue gets us, there's a certain stuff about Kylie. Kylie I'm not worried about because no. I know Kylie's got a great sense of humour and basically what I've said to her is in a fucked up sort of way quite flattering. Yeah. Avril Lavigne. In, in, a, fucked so up sort, in a fucked up sort of way, yeah. Well, I'm not so sure yeah. about Avril. Or her. I'm, yeah. I'm slightly worried about touring America, to be honest. Yeah. And her insane fan base, of course, would you? Well, the, the, the writing about Avril Lavigne is far more... It's far darker. It's very dark. Yeah. It's quite shocking, in fact. It's shocking, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and it is the actual... The whole book like, revolves around Avril Lavigne's vagina. <laughs> and, and it's not a happy book. No. <laughs> um, but I just keep thinking, if, she, if Avril Lavigne wrote a book about my dick, I wouldn't <laughs> I can't wait. Um, and one last time, it's, it's, a, it's a sort of a specious question, but how, how much of you is there in, in Bunny? Well, I think, I think there's a lot in regard to the way he rears his kids, the way he rears the little boy in the sense that um, he's... I know I know what it's like uh, to be to be with kids, and I and I know that you can boy up children, and make it's not difficult to make children of a certain age excited about anything, uh, and this is one of the things that Bunny does for a while on the road yeah, is to yeah. try and keep the son kind of like that he's having a good time yeah. when he's all he's doing is sitting in the car waiting for his yeah. dad to or come. Or going going to McDonald's, which is a bit yeah exactly yeah. 
Um, so, I mean, I do understand the mentality of the... Well, I, actually, I don't understand the mentality of the nine-year-old. I mean, I understand what it's like to father a nine-year-old. I think that the stuff that happens in the child's mind, we, we really forget. And, and it's very difficult to write about what goes on in a, in a child's mind um, because it's kind of... It's magical and it's about, it's about things that get taken away from us. I know that when you become 10 and 11 and 12, that the idea of the father being the kind of Superman, it, it stops. You know, I have older yeah. kids and I know eventually they start to see you as a human being and, you know, yeah. uh, faulty and, you know. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's a beautiful age, nine, to, to, uh, to, to Well, you've captured that part very beautifully as well. Um, I'm now going to... I no idea what we're doing on the time front, and it's also very hard to see anyone. So um, you may have to shout out if you have a question to ask. Oh, there's a microphone going there. So there's a guy right here. We've got 15. Oh, brilliant. So 15 minutes of action-packed questions. Good evening. Nick, can I ask what authors do you admire yourself um, and of those, which would you say have influenced Bunny Monroe and how does that compare perhaps to <coughs> that which you were reading when you were writing Anne the Ass or the Angel? Um, well, you know, I mean, I'm, I wouldn't know who, who... I wouldn't be able to say who really influenced the book, but there's certainly writers that I like, certain types of writers that I like. Um, John Updike, for example. The, the, uh, or the, the kind of prose stylus I like a lot. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really kind of interested in language and the, and the rhythms of language and that sort of thing. So it's those... Um, the more heavy, stylized writers that I like, Nabokov, or um, of contemporary writers. One of my favourite writers is Brett Easton Ellis, um, who's been much maligned for um, some of the books that he's written, and is uh, I don't think is um, given credit for being one of the truly great prose stylists around. Um, there's stuff going on line by line with Brett Easton Ellis that's mind-boggling. Um, but he writes about, a writes about particular sorts of things that uh, I think where, where people sort of dismiss him in some, in some ways. But I think he's just truly extraordinary. And I, and I guess with this book, if there's, any, if there's anyone that I had to willfully push myself away from, it was him, you know, to, to be careful not to... I mean, there's a certain rhythmic thing that is similar, I would say, between the way that I write and the way that he writes. Thank you. It's a very cinematic book, great read. And um, if it comes to the big screen, then would you consider playing Bunny? Uh, no. <laughs> no, um, I'm much too handsome. You're, you're through, okay. <laughs> um, no, uh, no. But I would invite Avril Lavigne to play the... Uh, <laughs> the Avril Lavigne character in the book. Um, but is, no. Who is Lavigne, actually? Who is she? Man, get on the internet. She's great. Skater boy. She's a singer. 
nosotros. Um, Nick, I, I love the book. I thought it was brilliant. I loved your first book and so different. Um, and the fact you mentioned Brett Easton Ellis, um, funnily enough, the first book I read after it for a second time was Luna Park. I thought it was absolutely, um, your book was brilliant. At what point did there's a, my favourite line in the book is, I just found this world too hard to be good in. I was wondering if that applied to you at all. Um. Uh, look, you know, I mean, I, th I think you've got to separate, you know, I mean, it's, it's tempting to, to look within, within the character for, uh, for, for signs of the author and stuff like that, but I think you've got to separate the two. Um, you know, it's a piece of fiction, and I, I, I feel very, I mean, I, on the one hand, I understand that character, but I feel removed from him, you know, it's not, it's not, I mean, I do crop up a couple of times in the book, I don't know, I'm, there's a, child molester with dyed thinning hair and <laughs> and um, and there's a musician at the end with a moustache I was you know, <laughs> um, which I don't have anymore but um, you know I, 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 I can't I don't know how to answer that question really um, I don't know I mean I don't know if I find this world a hard place to be good in um, no I don't actually. I don't know what good means, though. Um, to be moral in? I don't know. Um, I mean, I know that I can lead a, a kind of life that I hope is a reasonably sort of decent life, but that I can go into my office and um, go uh, visit my imagination, and that's a place where anything goes. Um, and for me, there is no morality in there, or there is no uh, strictures, and that, that I can go anywhere I like, and that I'm free to go any, anywhere I like. Um, and it seems the more, um, let's say, decent my real life becomes, the more perverse and um, uh, obscene and generally fucked up my Im imaginative life becomes. <laughs> And I think that possibly the imaginative life is something that uh, provides you with something that you need. Um, I know that when I was, my, my life was chaotic, I was writing a lot of very uh, quiet spiritual songs, I guess you could say. Um, so often it's a, it's, a, it's a place that you need to, to visit to get some kind of balance, you know, maybe. So, yeah. I read your point methodical with your creative output work. Um, and with your writing, your music, your work in the film, I was wondering, and your personal life, of course, um, I was wondering how you can fit it all in. Do you have like a kind of school less time less timetable from Monday to Wednesday you write, from Wednesday to Friday? No, no. No, I just I try and work on you know, I'm working on one thing at a time generally. And uh, and not taking time off in between. And I, I find that, that creatively one thing tends to uh, revitalise the... I mean, the, it's not like I'm doing the same thing over and over again. So I can write a book. By the time I finish that book, I'm screaming to make a record or something like that. And by the time I finish making a record, I can't... You know, music is the last thing I want to go near and I do something else. So it has a it's a kind of perpetuating thing that works, seems to work very well. Um, where you don't really need time off, you know. Um, hi, thank you for your reading, it was fantastic. Thank you. Um, 
You've spoken a lot about men and malehoodness and English men and laddishness. And um, actually what I got a lot from the reading was a lot about women, in a way, and about the stream of um, suburban women that he kind of appear, pounces upon and visits upon. Um, and it reminded me a little bit of two other books. One is The Road, obviously a relationship between a father and son, and also Nolita, which is this journey, this kind of sexually depraved journey through America, um, both of which say so much about America, one about a kind of apocalyptic America and the other about kind of 50s America. Um, so I was just interested if you could talk more about what interests you about this suburban woman that seems to be a character that appears a lot. You know, um, and the context of kind of... I mean, to, to, okay, to keep this very brief, because this is kind of quite a long story, but ba basically this started off as a film script. And the, uh, for the director, John Hillcote, who I did the proposition with, and he came and asked me, would I, write him another, would I write him another script, which I was very happy to do. And I asked him what he wanted it to be about, and he said, a travelling salesman, uh, Butlin's um, holiday camp and Butlin's Holiday Camp. So basically, he wanted those two, two elements uh, in the film because they were things that he was interested in for whatever reasons, I have no idea. And I, I, had, and I, and, and I was like, sure, I can do that. And he also wanted an after-death experience of some sort. So he was interested in that. So basically, I was given, given a kind of um, a framework to, to go away with and write the script, which I did. Um, and... So that's, uh, and I, but I did decide to, and the reason why it was set in Brighton was because the proposition was set in Australia and we didn't want to have to travel to go all the way over to Australia to make a film. Let's make one outside our front door. Um, so that was, so, so basically the story kind of fell together in a, in, um, in a kind of accidental way. And that's, I think, what I was trying to say before. It's not, to me, it's not so much uh, that I have a particular interest in these things, in a travelling salesman, for example, or whatever. It's much more uh, a, f a kind of framework that, that I can um, hang my writing on. Um, so, um, I, I, did, I wasn't intending to explore suburban housewives uh, or, or to kind of, you know, um, but I was excited to uh, kind of wrap my words around them in some way, if that makes any sense. Sorry, it's a um, very short and simple question. Well, I don't know how simple it will be, but where does the name Bunny Munro come from? I don't know. <laughs> I thought that might be the case. Yeah, I don't know. Bunny was, you know, like, <clears throat> Bunny was kind of cute. It's a cute thing, a bunny, you know, but it's kind of got a sexy thing about it, doesn't it? Yeah. I don't know, maybe not. <laughs> no, anyway, it's it like, a, I don't know. I don't know. Okay, fair enough. We can, we can sneak in one more, yeah. Hi, I'm Lisa from the Volps Libris book blog. Um, from the where? The Volps Libris book blog. I think okay. uh, James sent you some of my early thoughts about the book. Anyway, I wondered what you, what you thought Bernie Monroe's best qualities are, apart from, obviously, his appreciation of, of the vagina. <laughs> Um, well, yeah, the thing that, that I admire about him is that he uh, is his commitment 
to, to uh, his, his desires. Uh, he doesn't waver, he doesn't, he's not in, you know, he has, he's incredibly focused um, on what he wants. And, um, yeah, I think that that, that, that that would be it. He definitely has focus. He has no focus. No doubt about that. Yeah. I've got to say my heart always sinks when I hear that uh, rock, rock, rock people are starting to write, but this is actually, this is, stands alone, you know, as, as a great piece of literature, so... Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. I hope you enjoy it. To purchase the audiobook or listen to more episodes in the series, click the link below or search for Meet the Author in the iTunes Store.